when preparing for something like ritual or doing specific sacred work, what we do is invoke fire and ice by calling the runes Isa and Kenaz of the Elder Futhark rune set, um, which represent the forces of ice, a more gradual kind of change of a different kind of continuous process, but one that can also move very swiftly. And fire, which you can see is more rapid and dynamic, but also something that can be tempering and reinforcing. And by bringing these things together in like consecrating ritual space, we are reenacting that moment of creation. And by doing that are opening the way for new things to happen and sort of giving charge to what it is that we do. For me, just imagining in my right hand, the feeling of ice, right? Just feeling the deep cold and feeling kind of almost the burn of the cold, right? And the stillness of the ice. And then in, the, in my left hand, feeling fire, feeling like a flame come from my palms and allowing those two sensations to to kind of grow and and expand and then in a moment bring them together in a in a clap right i've had all sorts of wild stuff happen right like visuals of like flowers blooming in my chest and heart and greenery just like the torso just turning green with creation with these two elements bringing them together and the feelings persist you know i remember the first time i did this like my hand was just cold like all day. It just had this this tingle of the deep cold. I think these are the ways that some of these practices be become kind of a personal way of being, right? Like being connected to the elements. Welcome to Crazy Wisdom. I'm your host, Luke Antrop. Crazy Wisdom is our show about the wild, the unexpected and interesting places we find ourselves in during our quest to live a life of deeper meaning and deeper truth. My hope is with each conversation and each story, you discover a new part of yourself on your journey towards making the most out of this one wild and precious life. This is a Soulfire production. Well, I am joined this week by Ryan Smith, Ryan is an author. He focuses on radical Norse paganism and anti-racist heathen spirituality. Welcome to the show, Ryan. Thanks for having me on, Luke. Yeah. So I, not so long ago, finished this wonderful book, uh, The Way of Fire and Ice. And this is really just a wonderful kind of summary of present day radical Norse paganism. Yeah. So I kind of found my way into this way of being um, on a, I guess in some ways on a lifelong quest, right? So I was, as many of the listeners know, I was raised in a Catholic tradition and found very little significant meaning for myself in that and spent, you know, many years kind of wandering about looking for places that I could find deeper meaning and truth. And over recent years, that's led me back to the place of connecting to my ancestors, right? And, and, you know, first from an examination of like, why do I view the world and life in the way that I view it, right? In my unique experience of being born into this body, there are factors, there are causes and conditions about how I experience the people around me, how I experience life, pain, wonderment, awe, uh, trauma, all of these things kind of lead one to have, uh, to viewing life a little differently than the people next to me. And, you know, that took me on a quest of really understanding my ancestors first through like unraveling all of the, the nonsense of, of Christendom and then finding my way back to pre-Christian kind of worldviews. And for me, I have, you know, quite a bit of German, Nordic, 
and Celtic lineage, actually 100%. And so I, mm-hmm. you know, I just went super deep into like, okay, what was, what is the, what was the worldview? What were the gods and goddesses? What's the creation myth? And in doing so, I found my way to your book and others to try to really understand, like, how do you bring these alive through practices, through community here today? And so that's a little bit of how I landed here. For those that don't know some of these, these stories, the characters, maybe a good place to start is with the title of your book, The Way of Fire and Ice. And this is based on the creation myth of the Nordic people. And I'm wondering if you might just, just talk us through, like, what, tell us about this story of how you know, life came to be. Sure. Uh, So for the Nordic peoples, the present world that we are in now is not reality as it originally was. Um, In the distant primordial past, in a time that you could see as almost like comparable to like whatever existed before the Big Bang, um, there was a great void called the Ganunga Gap, which is where we exist now but that comes a bit later. Um, And on either side of the Ganunga Gap were two other realms. One that was a realm of fire called Mospelheim, and the other, the realm of ice called Niflheim. And for no one knows how long, but for uncounted eons, this just sort of was the equilibrium that existed. Then for reasons that are unknown to, because there's really nobody who can say what happened then, the fire raged forward from Muspelheim, the ice surged from Niflheim, the two collided within the gap, and there was a tremendous release of energy and steam, like steam particularly is referenced in the Prosetta. And from this came a land that was, you could describe as almost being like a tundra inhabited by a great giant named Ymir and a great cow, Odumla. Um, for uncounted ages uh emir supped from the milk of odumla and also gave birth through various means sort of like budding off of their limbs uh to the first of what would become the frost giants um and also some of the other giants as well and eventually odumla who survived by licking off a like you could presume to be lichen off of the rocks what it specifically says is licking the rhyme which you know sounds a lot like reindeer up in the Mm -hmm. far north doing Mm -hmm. exactly that um Mm -hmm. and the licking would released a being of light named buri buri would marry and have children with one of the giants who already lived in the this realm um and then buri had a son named boar who married a giant as well and they had three sons named Odin, Vili, and Vey. Um, Odin is probably somewhat familiar for folks who have read a bit about the lore. Um, uh, Vili and Vey just sort of float around the edges a bit more. But one day, after living in this state where only Ymir could drink of the milk of Odumla, and everyone else just sort of had to make do with what they could in this very sparse realm, Odin and his brothers rose up against Ymir, slew the giant, and then used Ymir's body to construct Midgard, which is physical reality as we know it. Um, yes, wonderful. So it's it's uh, as you can feel. There's there's just it's in, like all great myths and legends. There's just so many twists and turns, and and bringing in the ideas of elements and forces. And when we look at this story through kind of a mystical lens of feeling these forces in our own 
being, that's when they really have come alive for me. And, you know, I've spent a lot of time kind of in meditation and, and working in shamanic states and different traditions. And there's this practice of really connecting to the elements. And in your book, you, you write about a particular practice that I've found to be really uh, potent, which is, you know, taking the ice in one hand and the fire in the other. Maybe you could actually walk us through, like, to tell the listeners a bit about this practice, and, and which is one that I have taken from your book and has really come alive in my kind of my daily practices. So I thank you for that. Thank you. And sure. So there's a few different ways we do that because it's something that really runs through so much of what we do in ritual and practice. Like there's um, some meditations that tap into the same logic. Um, and most directly when preparing for something like ritual or doing specific sacred work, what we do is invoke fire and ice by calling the runes Isa and Kanaz of the Elder Futhark rune set. Um, which represent the forces of ice, which some could say is like stasis or order, but I see it as more sort of a more gradual kind of change of a sort of a different kind of continuous process, but one that can also move very swiftly. And fire, which you could see as more rapid and dynamic, but also something that can be tempering and reinforcing. And by bringing these things together in like consecrating ritual space, we are reenacting that moment of creation and by doing that are opening the way for new things to happen and sort of giving charge to what it is that we do. Yeah. So in my practices, this has been, I mean, it's just kind of wild, right? Like when we can get quiet enough and get still enough in our own being and really connect to our breath in a deep way, the level of sensitivity that then occurs in our own body mind becomes pretty, pretty significant. And so for me, just imagining in my right hand, the feeling of ice, right? Just feeling that deep cold and feeling kind of almost the burn of the cold, right? And um, the stillness of the ice. And then in the in my left hand, feeling fire, feeling like a flame come from my palms and really um, allowing those two sensations to to kind of grow and and expand. And then in a moment, bring them together in a, in a clap, right? Mm -hmm. And, and the feeling then that occurs in the kind of the center part of the body in the, in, you know, in the tantric traditions, we talk about it as the inner flute or the center column, right? I've had all sorts of wild stuff happen, right? Like visuals of like flowers blooming in my chest and heart and greenery, just like the torso, just turning green with creation with these two elements, bringing them together. And the feelings persist. You know, I remember the first time I did this, like my hand was just cold, like all day. It just had this, this tingle of, of kind of the deep cold, like I'm driving the car and just feeling the cold of, uh, of Nephilim, right? And feeling the cold just throughout the day and feeling connected to that. I think these are the ways that some of these practices be become kind of a personal way of being, right? Like being connected to the elements and in this way. Yes. Yeah. And that's something that is, I like to incorporate that in other ways as well. Like there's one meditation that um, is in the book that's used for helping to open yourself up to the other worlds of the nine worlds on the world tree. And how it does it is by tapping into things that are similar to that, that we find in nature, particularly the core of the earth and the cold of the vacuum of space that lies beyond the atmosphere. And mm. creating that kind of synthesis within can really, for me, it feels like it sort of loosens up the hold of like reality as we know it and makes it easier to perceive things that lie beyond. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so you write about in the book, kind of this, the difference between 
the traditionalist view of this, right? Like there are some kind of sects of paganism that are really like quite in some ways like fundamentalist, right? Like they're quite literally trying to preserve the precise uh, traditions as they were. And your point of view is more that we bring them alive and make them relevant for the moment we're in, right? And in doing so, you talk a bit about like, there are the gods, but we, correct me if I'm wrong, but like there's the idea of like the gods and goddesses that also exist as forces. You talk about them as forces in the book. So they're like, we're not necessarily taking this like quite literal interpretation of these. They're meant to be these elemental forces that exist for us to be in relationship with, to find some deeper level of harmony and meaning and, you know, kind of potency in our life. Is that right? Somewhat. Like I see them as sort of gods are just, I mean, if you just take it as writ of what's in the source material, these are beings that have a sufficiently comprehensive knowledge of matter and energy and all these other things to spin stars from the firmament and, Mm -hmm. uh, create the building blocks of life and all these other things that are like them trying to explain how they do these things would probably like in a way that they could understand would almost be like trying to explain algebra to ants um you know um so it's like i think they they have a sense of agency to them and they have a definite sense of personality and but i also think that that's like the stories are our way of understanding these powers that are definitely conscious and animate but also represents so much more than just this is literally a bearded old man uh with Mm -hmm. one eye who wanders the world with a spear in his hand though those are things that can help recognize and understand them because i see it as sort of like the like the names the forms and all these things that these powers take on as part of how we comprehend them and how we're able to better like wrap our brains around these things that are you know, sort of like trying to shove the ocean into a water glass. Um, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. So there's some meaning making that's helpful. I'm curious if there are like particular gods or goddesses that you call on in certain situations in your life. Do you have a particular resonance with, with a particular kind of God, or I'm just curious how you relate to this specifically the gods and goddesses, like how you bring them to life for yourself. For me, I see them as like particularly the one I work with the most is Odin. I have a particularly close relationship with Odin. That's one that has sort of grown and developed as my practice and understanding both of him and the broader um, thing that is heathenry and heathen practice has grown with time. Um, And I see like in some ways I see interact with him in ecstatic states and in meditation of that sometimes he will come as like sort of more a um you could say clear and animate personality taking on like a form you're comfortable with so to speak um the uh sometimes it'll be more like a strong feeling or that sort of tingle in the back of your head or sometimes there will be moments of synchronicity, like encountering pairs of ravens unexpectedly before like having to do something particularly challenging or... The raven being Odin's eyes, right? Like in, the, in mm-hmm. this tradition, yes. Yeah. There's a lot of ways that for me, Odin, as well as many of the other gods will manifest. And also sometimes even in like transpossessory work, though I mean, I'm personally not as skilled in that. There's other people I work with who are much better in that particular art. There's just so many ways that they come in and can interact with us that are, and there's different ways you can think of it as well, because also like to, from a more intellectual perspective, I see like there's a lot of like metaphor and like valuable lessons that can be learned from the stories themselves, uh, both in 
um, Odin's uh, virtues as well as his fairly significant flaws. Um, <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. Right? Our gods are flawed and we have no problem with accepting that and occasionally having a laugh about it. Yes, indeed. Indeed. Yeah. There are also some practices around honoring the dead and honoring the gods. And, um, you know, in many traditions, there's a kind of a version of this of making offerings of food or, or, you know, meat or wine. And I'm wondering if you wouldn't mind just describing the Norse tradition of this offering, you know, making offerings of kind of a feast for the dead. Sure. Uh, so the core rite that we use for doing that is called a bloat, which literally translates as sacrifice. Um, historically, this usually involved animal sacrifice. Um, but, you know, for most modern practitioners, it's very difficult to, you know, sustainably and humanely raise and care for livestock. Um, so generally, the offerings that are given are things that are, it can be most frequently things like food or mead. Um, are popular, but usually it can just be something that is like a consumable thing or something that is of value to the person who is giving the offering as sort of a way of showing respect and giving thanks, as well as like maintaining a sense of reciprocal relationship with the dead, with the gods and with the other like animistic powers around us. Yeah. So there's like three rounds, right? Of, of yep. offerings. Well, you just named them, right? So it's the of the gods, of the ancestors, or the lost loved ones, and then the spirits of the land, yes? Yes. And what's given as offerings can, you know, it can be things that, like, say, a more conventional bloat would be, like, giving offerings of things like food um, and mead. But you could also do something like, say, write a verse of poetry that is only to be recited once as an offering of, like, creative work. Um or you could like make like draw or paint something that is then like offered up to a fire as sort of like a permanent sacrifice. Um, and even like depending on circumstances, uh, I'd say there's like some contexts where giving an offering of something as simple as water could be the most valuable and meaningful thing that you could give in that particular moment. What's the meaning derived for you or for, you know, for others in these offerings? Like what's the practice why is this something that, you know, is part of this tradition? It's about maintaining the cycle of gift for a gift. Everything is about reciprocal exchange of an, and you know, not exactly like quid pro quo of like, you know, I give you this money and I get this thing from you. It's more like we are in relationship with each other. So we do things for each other. We give each other gifts and we help each other out. And it's a way of showing respect and creating and maintaining that relationship. Um, through a direct physical act that is also an act of you are giving a thing up as a gift to them. Um, so like, for example, the act of pouring out mead onto the earth makes the mead no longer usable for you and no longer in your possession. And you are literally and symbolically giving it to, like, say, the spirits of that particular place. Um, and in that way, you are showing that you're not just, you know, saying I am in relationship with you and I recognize you as being in relationship with me. It's doing relationship of it's, you know, basically putting some umph behind your word of more than just, oh, well, I say this is the things I believe it's I do these things because this is part of how I live and this is part of how I maintain this relationship in the same way as like, you know, with our friends and family that we visit them or we take like, you know, take them out for like dinner or what have you or um like have people over and share food and hospitality. And it's the same kind of thing of extending that logic out to the other worlds and to the powers uh, that live beyond. Beautiful. 
Wonderful. And there are there are feast days, there are holy days, right? And it's very connected to the rhythms of the earth and the cosmos. Um, like many traditions centered around the solstice and the equinox. Um, are there, maybe you could just say a word or two about uh, notable holy days or, or these kind of, um, yeah, just the, the days of ceremony. Sure. Um, like the four biggest ones, and there's also other ones that we do as well, but like the four biggest, like you said, are on the solstices and the equinoxes, specifically Yule, um, which just passed, um, uh, Midsummer, which is associated with the um, summer solstice. And then you have uh, spring and fall in between. And the thing that's significant about these in terms of the experience of them, of being within them, is that the solstices are sort of like the extremes of day and night um, because of, you know, the Earth's rotation around the sun and what have you. These are the times of year when in the winter, the day is the shortest and the night is longest. And the summer, the day is the longest and the night is shortest. And the equinoxes in between are when things are perfectly in balance, but things are moving in a different direction. Like in spring, the daylight is growing, uh, whereas at the fall, the night is now the thing that is on the advance. And it's part of the sort of continuous cycle that is always in motion and sort of reminds us of that. And also what is important about those specific moments. And for me, particularly like the solstices really came home from when I was living in Scotland a few years ago, up until like COVID happened, living somewhere that was like far north enough that there's a really that you really see a noticeable swing. And when I say like noticeable swing, I mean, like, around Yule on the winter solstice, the sun would set around and I was living in like the lowlands of Scotland um, in Glasgow. So like not totally far, not north enough to see like auroras or something, but still pretty up there. Um, uh, the sun would set around three o'clock in the afternoon. And by four o'clock, it would be the deepest black you have ever seen in the sky. Like we're not just talking like, oh, it's night and it's dark out, but like almost this feeling of like the stars and the moon are straining against the darkness around them. Um, and the sun doesn't come back until like 9 30, 10 o'clock the next morning. Um, and like people are basically getting up and going to work and doing things in like just utter darkness. Um, and on the reverse in the summer, the sun doesn't set until like around 1130 at night. And then it rises again around like two or three in the morning. So it's just sort of this short little like blip of things are a little and in between, it's not even really that dark. It's more like this kind of twilight, just thinking on like what that would have meant, especially for these peoples that lived even further north and where this swing would have been even more extreme. And this would have been a thing that would have influenced things like heavily, like during like say the time of Yule of like the whole lunar month before and after would have been incredibly cold and dark and anything that you would have been doing as far as work or travel or anything would have been very strongly limited by your environment and mostly focused on survival and bringing people together so that you can make it through the long night that's now upon us and on the flip side like the summer of midsummer that was like the height of things like journeying and raiding and all these kinds of things during like you know the pre-christian times as well as you know even now like it basically like most of northern europe spends a lot of its time in these respective periods, like going out and celebrating and partying or vacationing or like coming in and staying in with everybody because the environment really strongly encourages that. 
Yeah. There's like a code of ethics or principles. And one of the the primary codes is that of hospitality. And I think we understand why, right? If you're in that oh, yeah. such a brutal winter with such utter darkness to be left out without accommodation or food, I mean, you're, you're dead, you're dead. And so there was a very strong culture of hospitality uh, in the Nordic people. Yes. Oh yeah. And it's, like, and it comes from that kind of basic, you need to be able, you need this to survive in these circumstances. And you never know when you may need to veil yourself on the hospitality of others, or others may need it from you. And like, really, the only people that could be excluded from it were people who had done sufficiently terrible things that they were just completely excluded from society. Um, and, you know, exile was in its own way, almost a death sentence, because having to survive on your own in those conditions was extremely difficult and challenging. So it was, and it is also kind of this, you know, this sort of mutual aid practice. And we see this all over the world in different cultures of people like to help each other. So I'd like to shift gears here. And I can't believe I've, I'm saying this. I've never said this on my podcast, but let's talk about Nazis. <laughs> <laughs> so you write about fascism and the rise of neo-fascism and neo-Nazis in your book quite a bit. And in some ways, I just find it really unfortunate that we even have to, you know, we even have to go there. It's, it's kind of baffling that that's where our culture's at. But in these traditions in particular, there's been so much around the fringes of Norse paganism. Some of the symbology, some of the kind of worldview has been co-opted and kind of used for white nationalism, alt-right, fascism neo-Nazism. And I'm just, you know, I'd love to just get your view on how we deal with this. And fundamentally, like, what do we do? You know, like, how do we handle the, this situation? Because these are traditions, as I go deeper into them, I love it. It feels so good. I feel, you know, I feel the connection to my ancestors through these. But there is this layer that's attached in the culture because of a few people on the fringe that some of these traditions are seen to be in relationship with, with fascism and neo-Nazism. Part of that is even like the original fascists were very free in how they appropriated from history and from myth to create justification um, for what they were doing. And, you know, there's also a lot of like sort of like contradictions and tensions within that. Um, like, I mean, there's like and it's there's like places in the book where I refer to like some places where Hitler very openly was saying, no, this is a Christian movement. We are doing this in the name of the Lord. Mm -hmm. um, Distancing himself from, you know, traditional Nordic practices. Yes. Oh yeah. Um, and you know, Mussolini did similar things like, um, and like Franco was absolutely all about God and country. Um, mm -hmm. like, and there wasn't really that as much of an esoteric element in that fascist movement. And I think that's sort of as part of where sort of the seedbed comes from of that. There were these esoteric fascists that originally existed, mm -hmm. um, even though they were ultimately marginal within these movements, because, you know, the fascists want power and, power lies with the traditional institutions of society, which at the time, and also to an extent now, includes certain elements of Christianity. So mm -hmm. that's who they played ball with, because um, that's what it's always about with fascism is power. And the elements that today within the neo-fascism neo that appropriate 
different aspects of pagan practice are i think part of it is they're sort of like in, they're sort of like the descendants of those original esoteric fascists because you know the, those folks didn't really go away after the end of the second world war they just went underground they um sort of cleaned up their act or they or at least enough in public to not run into any serious questions um and kept doing their thing in different ways and that then along with like stuff that was going on with things like fighting Jim Crow and the civil rights movement and all of like the can of worms that that opened up, one that needed to be opened up absolutely and is still being opened up, that saw its own like sort of reinvigoration of this sense of it's this like concept of white identity. And part of that is also really deeply steeped like fascism originally was in anti-Semitism. So you get groups that don't just go, hey, we're appropriating this stuff because it looks good. It's a nice aesthetic. It's something that looks cool, even though we're not they don't really dig as deep into what really goes on in the myth and the source material as much. Um, Because for them, it's not just it looks cool and it's a neat aesthetic. It's also this is a way that we can have an authoritarian seeming cosmic order that justifies what we're doing. That's not Jewish, basically. Like for a lot of these groups, it comes down to replacing God the Father with Odin, Jesus with Thor, and Satan with Loki. Um, And it's really not much different in practice from a lot of stuff like Christian identity and other like overtly Christian white nationalist movements. Um, But with the subtext of, but this way we don't have to worry about the fact that Jesus seems a little... uh, um, mm-hmm. not what we like, um, mm-hmm. yeah. basically. Um, and it gives them also an out for getting, like being able to ignore like the parts of the Bible of things like blessed be the peacemakers. And it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter heaven. And all those other things that sort of are a bit awkward if you're trying to be a fascist. Yeah. What do we do then? What do we do with these neo-fascists, these white nationalists that are you know, really in the public eye, there's a wake, there's harm being caused to the perception around, you know, neo-paganism and, and of course, much broader impact around what, you know, what their agenda would, would do to, you know, our culture and our world. But I mean, what's, what's to do? You've written about this quite a bit. And I'm just wondering like, what, you know, in a nutshell, like, what do we do with Nazis? I think what we have to do is we have to call it out for what it is. And we have to be uncompromising in doing that. It's like part of the experience in heathenry was for a long time, there was a bit of a consensus that said, well, let's try to not to rock the boat for a variety of reasons, quite a few of which I don't think were very good reasons. Um, you, call, you call this the silence pact? Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that really was the thing that enabled these groups to spread and develop within like these particular pagan spaces was saying, well, we can't rock the boat about it and let's just not directly confront it. Whereas when we started actually confronting this stuff and calling it out and basically saying, look, we're not giving space to these people anymore. And we're like creating agreements of saying all these different groups and practices will agree to keep them out. That was what started really turning the tide and pushing them basically to the edges of the community and also exposing how few they actually were. Cause like, that's part of the thing with fascism is as a movement, it isn't, it aspires to having mass following, but ultimately not everyone can be a fascist in a fascist society. There always has to be like somebody who is above and somebody else who is below being kicked. Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, historically only 
10% of Germans were actually in the Nazi party, for example. And part of that was because there has to be that hierarchy. There have to be those who are in control and those who are not. And that's also part of it is it's as much as they say, hey, Mr. Particularly white boy who's looking for meaning, we can give you that sense of meaning and empowerment and stuff while leaving aside. And guess what? Most of that is going to be that you are going to be at the mercy of somebody else and Mm -hmm. you are going to be a disposable object for that somebody else's ambitions in some way or another. And every fascist movement without exception always consumes its followers because at the end of the day, there is going to be, for whatever reason, you don't meet the ideological litmus tests or you just have become a threat to somebody else's power, you will be consumed by it. And I think that's part of what needs to be said is that it's not just these groups are have like morals and like have ideas that are morally repugnant. It's also that they present a clear and present genuine danger to other people, including the people that become part of these movements. That like it's more than just Nazis are bad. It's Nazis will destroy everything around them, including themselves sooner or later. Yes, they definitely they definitely eat their own. Yeah. So it's on all of us to call it out when we see it. Yeah. And also to organize, to confront it, to basically say, look, we have to oppose this and we have to do it in an organized fashion because and now, while we still can, before they become more organized and more dangerous and more willing to do violence. And Yeah. So it has to be called out. It has to be, uh, we have to shine light on it. Um, we have to borrow from one of my personal heroes, which is Indiana Jones. And we need to, we need to knock out, punch out the, the, the Nazis, right? Um, <laughs> so we have, we have, some, uh, we have some, some guides in the popular culture about how to deal with Nazis. Um, we also are seeing uh, seeing these stories and these Nordic characters arise in popular culture more and more. I mean, I've just seen, you know, just in the last few years even. Of course, there's the show Vikings, The Last Kingdom, which is uh, both of these shows have scenes of some of these practices in them, some of the original practices. Uh, you know, there's the Marvel's The Thor series. <laughs> which is i don't know it's kind of a a shiny version of thor not the <laughs> not the rough version that maybe we we know and uh my kids love the book the magnus chase series which is you know just it's like a young adult uh fiction novels about you know bringing a lot of these characters to life through the lens of you know modern day you know teenage boy and his friends um and so i'm just i just have to ask like what do you think of these you know kind of the the hollywood version of of this these these traditions arising in the popular culture uh, i think it's like i mean and just to put it out in front um i mean marvel thor is marvel thor it's oh inspired by comic books inspired yes. by the lore and i'm not going to complain at all that chris hemsworth and tom hiddleston seem to be great um <laughs> pr agents um <laughs> yes yes whether or not that's the intent um but um i i think that it's Like there's something about it that I think that people are looking for stories that give a sense of meaning and give a sense of like empowerment and like particularly something that also brings them closer to um, the natural world, which, you know, we're living in a time of escalating climate change. I mean, California's just been deluged for the last week in a way that hasn't happened in over 150 years. So I think that as that reality is becoming more manifest, people are turning to these ideas and they also are really good stories. Uh, Absolutely. People enjoy that. It's 
like and it's kind of almost broadly similar to how like in the late 90s there was this sort of surge of like witch media in the popular culture which was really which was Mm -hmm. around when i started doing pagan practice in the first Mm -hmm. place so i think that it's like from a more like if you're going to use a more sociological explanation, I think it's that these stories are inspiring to people and that there's an audience for it and there's an interest. And, you know, from a more like spiritual perspective, you know, this stuff is coming back that these gods never really went away. And this, you know, these things are sort of seeping their way back into our lived experience. And it's something to work with and something to interact with. Um, and yeah, Chris Hemsworth is a great recruitment poster um (laughs) (laughs) right on man so there's the book which i love you know i I think anybody that's interested in these go get the way of fire and ice um in the book you also write a lot about um communities and so if people want to find communities to practice with which is not something i've done quite yet but i have a feeling i might come find you soon in one of your your circles but um for those that are interested in uh you know being with others and exploring, you know, this way of, of being, where might you point them? My website on blackwings.com has uh, links to some good resources. Um, you can also find uh, the Fire and Ice community, particularly online, uh, either on Facebook or on Discord, um, depending on what your preference is. And there's also lots of other related groups that are out there. Like um, there's the Nordic Animism channel on YouTube that does some really great stuff. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, if all else fails, you can always just drop a, uh, drop me a line directly through the site um, and I can help point you in a particular in whatever direction seems best because, you know, this is a big, broad, diffuse community. Of course. Yeah. So we'll we'll throw all of those links in the show notes for people that want to click through and get connected to others uh, in that way. Brian Smith, thank you very much. The book is The Way of Fire and Ice. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much, Luke. And it was great being on. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Crazy Wisdom. If you like what you heard, please do rate and review the show on whatever platform you listen. This helps new people find the show. And maybe more importantly, it helps us grow our Crazy Wisdom community. My hope for you is between now and the next time you listen, that you try one new thing. One thing that would help you live a life of deeper purpose, deeper meaning, a life of greater love. And maybe that one thing is a little different, a little odd, a little intense, perhaps even a little crazy. 